electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks very much. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour of this critical week for your money, which now includes another big earnings warning. We'll discuss and debate what all of that means for the markets with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Jim Labenthal, Anastasia Amoroso, Stephanie Link, Josh Brown right here in front of me on our set today. Let's check the markets as we always do. The Fed meeting begins. The Dow goes down 244. Bond yields are up today. Uh, so you see there, 356 is the 10-year. The two-year is pushing close to four. Again, S&P's down. NAS not doing too much. So, Josh Brown, uh, nothing like an earnings warning to get in the way of your bullish call for stocks. Is that mm-hmm. the culprit? Just take us through that. For those who didn't hear it, you told me yesterday about 2.30 in the afternoon, markets set up for a rip-your-face-off rally both into and out of the, the Fed meeting. Market actually took off um, into the close yesterday, but here we are after Ford. Is that the culprit? No, nah, nobody cares about Ford. Listen, what, what, here's, what, here's what I want you to pay attention to. Uh, by the way, I, I think we're at a bear market still, no matter what happens, um, until that changes technically. That's just where I am. But I think that there, we're set up for a face-ripping rally here, more so than we're set up for more of what we're seeing today. Um, and, and here's where my conviction comes from. The VIX just can't get excited. You have the two-year has done the Fed's job for it. It's there. It's at 4%. It was at 397 yesterday, 4% today. Like, that's the thing. That's what it had to do. That's where it is. That's what financial conditions now are based on. We're there. We did that work. It took all year. It was torture. It was very painful for a lot of sectors of the market. But we've done that. Take a look at what's happening with the internals today versus the last time we had this spike in yields and a a rough stock market. Today looks nothing like mid-June. Right now, you're looking at 13% of S&P 500 stocks at a 52-week low. In mid-June, it was 40%. This is a very different situation. Look at a percentage of stocks above the 200-day, meaning stocks in a defined uptrend. 26% are in an uptrend. If you go back to June 16th, it was 13%. Almost nothing in an uptrend. This is a very different tape. Puts a call ratio now 54% versus about 86% then, the fear, the volatility is just not there, nothing like the last time we were at these levels, which leads me to believe, as hawkish as we think the Fed will be, and they should, that's their job right now, I just don't think the market has enough fear in it. Um, And and I just don't think we're going to get the same kind of reaction we got last time. And stocks are sniffing that out right now, and that's where I believe we're set up. Steph, you want to opine on that? Because I, I would love your take as well. Well, 
Okay, so the rates have been rising all year, and yet the S&P 500 is down 19 percent. Mm -hmm. So it is a struggle for equities when bond yields go higher, and bond yields are going higher. I know we're all focused on tomorrow. Do they go 75? Do they go 100? It doesn't matter. Rates are, are going are higher. Are bond yields going higher than where they are now, I think is a critical question. Or to Josh's point, it's kind of maybe this is where they top out. Oh, Fed I can continue to do what they do, but... Does that necessarily mean that no, I think rates that, continue to go up? I think rates have to go a lot higher. Inflation is not an easy fix. And we know we have not only inflation here, but globally. Did you see Germany's uh, inflation numbers yesterday? You saw Sweden raised rates by 100 basis points because they're behind the curve. So for years and years, we had central bankers that were easy across every country, right? Now it's, it's quite the opposite. And that is a big, big tailwind for equities, for risk assets. I kind of agree with Cooperman today. He headwind. Excuse I, me, headwind. I agree with you that it is. Headwind, right. But I kind of agree with Cooperman, what he said today. So the market is kind of struggling. It's a challenge. Yeah. I agree with that. But there are stocks to be found, right? That I have a whole list to buy, right, and that I have been adding to on the weakness because I am a long-term investor. It's I'm not making it's, money it's in these things right now. It's harder to find those names, I mean, yeah. in fairness. It's not, it's not easy to go out and find a lot of names that are so super attractive today. I mean, he also painted a picture of which the market is, is uh, not exactly cheap. No, the market is not cheap, but Schlumberger is cheap. John Deere is cheap. Bank of America is almost at one times a book. That's cheap. Starbucks. I mean, I loved what they had to say. They're at trough earnings. Numbers are going higher. I mean, that's rare. Dollar General is cheap. So there's a lot of names out there that I can find. Do they get cheaper? They probably do. But I think for the long term, they're gaining market share. They've got strong free cash flow and they have excellent executives um, and they're proven winners. And so I'm just picking names, not so much the overall broader market, because I think, again, as rates go higher and I'm in that camp, then I think it's going to be a choppy environment at best for equities. So, Farmer Jim, um, if rates go up, you got a problem, right? I mean, that's going to be a line in the sand for you and your bullish thesis. You, you cannot have stocks go up. They're definitely going up. De when, rates are yeah. definitely going up. You we all, gonna, all of us are going to continue to go up? Well, well, yes. But the question, the question is, look, if you're a seller of stocks right now here, after all that we've been through, the most relentless rise in overnight rates. If you're a seller today, then what you are saying is you think Fed funds rate has to get to five or six percent in order to be restrictive enough to bring down inflation. The data says you're probably wrong. Inflation in many categories is already starting to react to tightening conditions. So I don't know that we need to get to five, six percent just because headline inflation still has an eight in front of it. And the more months this goes on for, we may end up with that situation where rates stay high, just don't have to be materially higher. They stay and I, high, and we haven't felt the effects from them, though, well, yet. Well, I agree. That's and that is, the, that is the danger. That's that is the, the danger of, of the Fed thinking it hasn't right, we get there in a done second. nearly enough. We'll get there. Farmer Jim. Yeah. So, you know, Josh has, and, and Steph have said some very good things right now. I want to key on one word that Josh said, which is internals. And he went at it from one perspective. I'm going to go at it from the perspective of individual stocks. You know, for the last several weeks, there's been some remarkable outperformers. And, you know, this includes the airlines over the last three months. It includes the casinos over the last three months. And it actually includes the auto manufacturers, even after today's decline in Ford and GM. And to me, that's interesting. That's not what you would expect going into the tooth, uh, you know, the, the eye wall of a recession. 
Um, I think that's worth noting. Um, I, I think that it, it's positive on the margins. I also, you know, I like where Josh's head is with regards to some face ripping rally that might be temporary in nature. <laughs> of course there you is do. A problem, though, Scott. <laughs> of course no, you there do. Is, there is a problem, and you're alluding to it, which is rates. And the thing about rates is, I don't see any relief coming from rates over the next month. I mean, the most you can expect is maybe the uh, September CPI and PPI reports are better than people expected. Maybe, you know, I expected that for August and was clearly wrong on that. You know, the other thing to look forward to, but it's a month away, is what actually goes on with earnings. I know we're going to kick around Ford in a minute, um, but I think the jury really is still out on on where earnings are going to be. There are some people who think they're going to plummet. There's some people like me who think that margins are actually hanging in there along with aggregate demand. But the point at which I'm driving at is for the next three weeks or so, we're kind of still stuck in this macro environment of what's inflation doing, what's the Fed doing, and I just don't see a sustainable rally um, uh, coming from that. Now, again, I hope Josh is right, and I think when you get into the fourth quarter, those macro uh, variables may turn to the point where you actually do have a sustainable rally. So it all, as you said, Jim, is going to come down to earnings and Anastasia, right? Uh, FedEx on its own. Whatever. Right. I mean, a lot of that went from, OK, is that a real macro warning? And then it morphed into it, it Exe- only took execution. like three hours time for Ooh. it to happen, by the way. Uh, it's for it's, I mean, it's a FedEx's problem. Execution uh, and, and what have you. It's not a big macro call. Josh said it was a little glib. He, all right. He said no one cares about Ford. It's not big uh, enough. I care about it. I love Ford. It's not big enough. But the, but the point is, OK, dude, now you've dude, got two. Tesla is working on a breakout that. here. I got it. I got it. That's important. Uh, now you got two, though, okay? Individually, FedEx, all right, whatever. Ford, individually, whatever. Now you got two, Jim. Uh, so that's something, Anastasia, yeah. that we got to keep an eye on, right? Um, are these the first Absolutely. two of what will be many? And is that ultimately the market's biggest problem? Forget everything else. If earnings go down and they need a reset, stocks are not going up. Well, the market's biggest problem is the Fed is trying to materially slow down the economy. And I mean, to kind of go back to some of the comments, I think Josh is right. A lot has already been priced in in terms of how hawkish the Fed may be in terms of the dot plot and getting to four and a half percent interest rates, you know, sometime by the beginning of next year. But the surprise, a hawkish surprise that we may see is actually from Fed Chair Powell, just the way he communicates about it. I think in the last literally couple of weeks, I suspect the Fed's tolerance with inflation has really shifted. And I think their patience is really running thin. And the reason I say that, if you look at the last CPI report, the month over month change was 0.7%. And if you continue to have a 0.6, month over month increase, you're never going to see a 2% year over year inflation print. So they know that given the current inflation prints, they're on track to continue the 6 7% plus inflation. So what does that matter? Why does it matter? How do you connect the dots with FedEx and others? Well, in order for them to crack down on inflation, I think they realize they have to more significantly crack down on the economy and they probably have to crack down on the labor market. So that goes back to some of the uh, earnings and, you know, you know the, the bad pre-announcements is I think there's likely more of those to come. And that's why, you know, tactical bear market rallies aside, I just think it's going to continue to be a challenge for equities. First of all, they're not dirt cheap. You know, nobody's saying, you know, I really, really want to buy because they're so cheap. Mm -hmm. And second of all, I just looked at the relationship between the earnings yield on the S&P relative 
to the 10-year Treasury, guess what? It's below a five-year average. It's below a 10-year average. And it's the worst level since 2007. So I think investors need to realize this relative value of equities has unfortunately deteriorated quite a bit. Well, you're in the you're in the teens now in terms of the number of S&P stocks that are yielding more than either the two or 10 years. So I'm sorry, Anastasia, question question for you. If I had told you in January that we were going to have out of nowhere the Fed going from maybe one rate hike this year as their expectation, that we were going to have to digest 400 basis points or 375 basis points worth of rate hikes in 2022. Would you have told me the S&P would be down 18 percent or would you have been like, no, wait a minute. Actually, that sounds like the biggest shock we've seen outside of 1994 going back to the early 80s. And this is going to be way worse. So from my perspective, I try to flip it over. Who's more frustrated right now, the bulls or the bears? If you're a bear, you have to be looking at this like, why aren't they panicking? Why is the put-to-call ratio only 56? Why aren't the internals breaking down? Why is the NASDAQ flirting with green today? Like, from, from my perspective, if you think about who's more frustrated, got to be the bears here, right? I'd say, Josh, both the bulls and the bears are really frustrated. I mean, the, the bears really still want to have a washout event. I mean, yes. look, 17 times forward earnings, right? Like, nobody's excited about that. If we were to get to 13 and 14 times forward earnings, and if we're really truly to price in a recession, I think, you know, we could get excited about that. And on the flip side, you know, who can build a bullish case right now when the Fed is sitting on valuations? You're not going to see that multiple expansion. And if they're really now going after the labor market, guess what? Then I don't have faith in the $240 in the next 12 months earnings. So I think it's really tough for both. And that's kind of the buyer strike and the investor frustration that we see right now play out in the markets. But, That's why we've been trading in this really big trading range. So if I if I had told if you'd have said what you did, okay, they're going to raise 375, 400 basis points this year, and, it's the, and the S&P is only going to be down nineteen yeah. percent. Well, that's what ha- that's what happens when you do that when the economy is rip roaring strong because it hasn't forced the economy to totally roll over like it otherwise would if the economy wasn't as strong as it was when they started to embark on this new path. Fully agree, don't you think? Fully agree. Now, yeah, but that's, what, that's because you had record stimulus still in the system, that's right? right. But, I mean, they were buying bonds in of, March. It's a confluence of everything. It's the, yeah. st- it's the stimulus. It's the, the buying mortgage bonds yeah. when the housing market's still raging. It's the fact that the economy was just simply strong. Uh, on its own. And, now and demand for everything was, was raging. Houses, cars, and everything else. And you right. couldn't get half the stuff you right. wanted. And now you don't have as much stimulus, right? So you are seeing the economy slow. And that's the problem. We're slowing. I don't think we're in a recession right this moment. But we're slowing and they're raising rapidly. And they're going to stay high for longer. And we're not going to feel the effects of these rate increases until next year, which is why I've said for a while yeah. you, you could see a recession easily so let, in let me ask. Let me ask you this, Jim Labenthal, Farmer Jim, um, because I'm sure you got clients calling you all the time, right? Uh, And Anastasia alluded to this fact that you have competition for the first time in a long time in the fixed income market. Okay, Uh, it's not just a two year either. Uh, Somebody just sent me a a muni uh, that they got five percent, five percent yield, not a piece of crap paper either. Uh, Illinois, a right. Um, 
Therein like lies. That's like six and a half. With, there, uh, therein yeah, lies the, the competition for yep. you trying to recommend that stocks are the best bet right now. Well, so let's let, first off, um, I do give wealth advice to my clients and I'm part of a wealth advisory firm. So believe it or not, I actually like higher interest rates from the point of view of now there is an alternative. Like to have clients all in equities for the last several years isn't all that healthy. You'd like to have a more stable portfolio for your clients and now you can add bonds. But you know, I would say this, while that is now an alternative, that doesn't mean that you should just shift all to bonds because consider, let's just take your 5% interest rate. I don't know what the maturity is. It doesn't matter. You know, that's still a negative real yield. What's that? 2057 <laughs> is the maturity. <laughs> okay. That's good. You just probably don't have to go is. out that far. No, no, that's good. But let me just make the point here. You still have a negative real yield. So you're kind of hoping in that case for inflation to come down. If inflation does come down, as many of us expect and want, um, that's going to be probably more positive for equities than for bonds in that category. So what I'm saying here is this is good that you can add bonds from a point of view of stabilizing an overall asset allocation in a way that you just haven't been able to over the past several years. But I don't think that it really changes the return, the prospective return spectrum, such that you want to overweight bonds versus equities. Hey, Scott, I'd like to make one comment on the earnings multiple, if I may. Just be quick, Jim. I don't like to go back once we already left the station because I got to move on. But go ahead real quick. Yeah, Edgar Denny, our friend, two days ago pointed out that when you strip out the top eight names in the S&P 500, the forward multiple goes from 17 to 15. You know what the top eight names are. And my point is just to make that when we look at the market multiple, this is definitely a time that I think we're supposed to be looking at sectors and stocks as opposed to just saying what the market multiple is. Uh, Okay, Um, so we've talked a lot about what's at stake this week. Let's bring in our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. On this issue of, Steve, it's good to have you back on the program, of uh, higher for longer, right? And that is what your Fed survey seemed to show, right? Respondents raised their outlook for the peak, and they think the Fed's going to stay at the peak for about 11 months before cutting rates. So that suggests higher for longer. Yeah, hike and hold, uh, Scott. And by the way, our Fed survey, it's the CNBC Fed survey. I know, we but all it's, I feel like own it's a yours. piece of it. I feel like it's yours. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, I do us, it on us, behalf. You, we're, all, we're all the same. Exactly. It's all the same. It's all family. But here's the deal. Um, just to be a little careful with the average, Scott, we've got some guys thinking the Fed gets there and stays there for three months. Other guys think the Fed gets there and stays there for 24 months. Uh, I think it's important, though, to look at the peak rate. Uh, the peak rate now is up. 426, which is 40 base points, 43 base points higher than the July survey, but a little bit under where the market is right now. The market right now is at 450. So there you go, 75 expected for the meeting. 426, the peak rate reached in March, 11 months at that peak rate, and then you can see a pretty hefty uh, probability of a recession, 52%. Uh, so yeah, some guys think it's the three months at the peak rate, some guys 24 months, and a bunch of folks at the 11 to 12 month area, and that's how we get to that average. But I think the story, Scott, uh, uh, on, on this show and, and in the market as well, because this show does a great job of really sort of uh, uh, saying what's going on in the market, which is uh, more embracing of the idea that the Fed reaches that peak rate and hangs around there for a while uh, in an effort to stamp out inflation. What about this idea of that, that, uh, that people are embracing, Steve, is the idea that the Fed's doing too much and that it's going to continue to do too much. Uh, it's a stern lick. It's Gundlock. It's, it's others. Uh, it's the yeah. oversteering is the word that Gundlock used with me out where we were both out in, in California. Um, 
What about that notion? How sensitive do you think the chair is to that? Um, I think he's sensitive to a point, Scott. But, but this is an interesting question, right, which is there has to be some pain, some softening. Some of the things that you've heard from people are exactly the things you would expect with a softening economy. Uh, and the question becomes, when do you sort of hit the panic button? When is it too much? I think uh, Chair Powell expects to hear some of the things he's been hearing uh, on our air regarding concern about going too far. And I would also expect that he would think he would hear those uh, m most loudly from those in the real estate industry, maybe some in the auto industry. Basically, he would expect to hear from people in interest rate sensitive sectors. Right. Um, he would also expect it to hear from guys in the stock market, right, because they're the ones taking it on the chin. But looking at the broader economy, um, the idea that we have a forecast for one and a half percent growth this quarter, um, I think he would think that's kind of a win for the broader economy. And he would he's hearing what he's he, what he would expect to hear from certain people who are ex, he would expect to have the most pain in this rate. It, well, rate it's interesting, though, you you use the word softening. It's what you would expect to hear from those in a softening economy. Barry Sternlicht, if he was sitting here, would tell you it's a crashing economy, at least in his economy, right? The one that matters most sure, to sure. him. Now, that plays into this. Well, I mean, you... Go ahead. No, no. I mean, you know that story about the, the blind guys feeling the elephant, right? They all have a different piece of it, right? Um, and uh, I, I'm not saying that Barry is that guy, but, but you know, he's in a particularly industry that's going to take it really hard. The, the other idea is how, how hard is Powell willing to let it go? Right. That that speaks to this uh, Nick Timrose thing from the journal who said, and I'd love your opinion on this. Powell scrapped his original Jackson Hole speech and decided to deliver usually uh, brief remarks with a simple message. The Fed would accept a recession as the price of inflation fighting. You've said that they may, in fact, be willing to do that. Is this becoming yeah. now uh, yeah. more clear than it ever has that he's willing to break yeah. it as long as he doesn't destroy it? Yeah, that was my immediate analysis from the uh, Jackson Hole speech when he used that phrase, pain. I guess he'd used it for the second time, but, but right now, it, it, in that speech, it stood out in bold relief. Um, and it's why I keep asking him the question and asked him twice at the last press conference. I may ask it again, Scott. I'm not really sure. But the question was, how does policy change if it is a recession? And he didn't really answer it he last time. He didn't answer. Uh, maybe he's ready to answer it now. But I think the answer is, it depends on how severe a recession is. I think if it's a mild recession... I don't think it changes very much because I think the Federal Reserve, uh, first of all, remember, Scott, they brought up that 1970s analogy where they uh, talked about the idea that the Fed hiked rates and then stopped, right, and then inflation came back. They don't want to repeat that. That's one. Uh, the other side is that uh, the Fed is willing to accept some increase in the unemployment rate, uh, maybe a couple negative quarters of growth. And, and if, it's, if, if they're mild negative quarters, I think the, and, and the result is it stamps out inflation, I think the Fed would count that as a win. Yeah, we're, we'll find out, I guess, as to whether, you know, investors are, are on or off sides uh, with what what the Fed is ultimately going to do, because Mohammed El Arian is listening and says higher, faster and for longer. Uh, and I'm not sure that, you know, all of all investors are, are, are at the point of accepting that. And we're going to find out. We'll hear from you tomorrow. Ask the yeah, question one, again. one quick comment on that, Scott. What, one quick comment, which is. The, the, the upside of this, the, maybe the, the, the Labenthal thesis might be the faster it gets there, the less time it has to spend there. 
which is that maybe if it does a strong job on the front end, maybe there's less work to be done on the back end. Yeah, although he would also say maybe they don't even have to get there. <laughs> so it, this thing is it's confusing. Uh, Steve, thanks. We'll see you in D.C. Uh, for the presser. Sure. That's Steve Pleasure. Leisman, our senior economic supporter. NVIDIA is trying to hold on to gains. The company unveiling a new uh, set of chips. We'll debate the stock along with the other beaten down tech names. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. We're back. NVIDIA just announced a new line of graphics chips, the once high-flying chip stock. But under a lot of pressure, as you know, lately falling nearly 25% in the past month, it's lost more than half of its value this year. JB, yo, Josh Brown, the owner of NVIDIA, on the show today. Yeah. Needle mover here? What moves this needle? I don't think so. Look, I've never traded NVIDIA. I've always been an investor, uh, and I remain an investor. And... The new gaming chip is great, but this stock has been locked in a pretty substantial downtrend, and there's nothing telling me that that's at its end, unfortunately. This is a stock that's now trading back to where it was in September of 2020. So all of the benefit of stay at home, of of more gaming, of crypto, all of the things that were fueling NVIDIA's share price, including uh, the bubble in growth stocks, is gone. So you're like basically reset. But what hasn't gone uh, is the fact that this company's fundamentals have only gotten better. So it's a cheaper stock than it was the last time it was at these levels two years ago, exactly two years ago. Um, and so I think if you're a long-term investor, yeah, it would have been great if you peeled some off at the top. And a lot of people did. I sold a little bit. Um, but if you're looking at this as like a short-term trade, I, we're not there yet. Aren't there it's, so many other semiconductor stocks that are so much cheaper? I mean, this thing not still in, trades at 38 times. Like yeah, but they're not NVIDIA. Like what? They don't have the roadmap. I got, I got Broadcom. They're in AI. They're in cloud. They're in data center. They're in software. They're making all kinds of acquisitions. Software's on 49% of the revenues. Yeah. They're raising their dividends, buying back a ton of stock, and it trades at, a, at, a, at half the multiple why? of in, NVIDIA. So ask yourself why. 
Well, it's, well, I mean, I think, I mean, NVIDIA, it's, to me, it's a little bit of a cult thing, yeah. right? That's number one. And I don't think Broadcom is kind of glamorous and sexy. No, right? nobody it's even understands not. why its ticker symbol is what it is. <laughs> well, so, that's, that's like, very, like five people is, know why its ticker symbol it, is. It, it, right. The CEO, he's really, really good. I put him right up there. Will he wear a motorcycle CEO. jacket for his next presentation? <laughs> really because that's what it. I need. Do you really want to buy chip stocks? Right, I, now. right now, I have been underweight, Chip. I have sold every. No, I, I sold every one of them in March. I know. So, look bad. But I did buy a Broadcom back because it got so cheap. Well, Farmer Jim, I mean, you make the argument that there's so much pent up economic activity that yeah. it's going to benefit semis. Where is that? Well, I mean, first, first off, these things have been disaster, right? So, I mean, if I start with Nvidia, that multiples come down a lot, and the peg ratio is 1.9, which is which is an indication that it's pretty cheap relative to its growth rate, even at 30 times. Now, if you look at something like Steph's uh, Broadcom or Qualcomm, those peg ratios are below 1.0, which means you're getting these things really, really, really on the cheap. Mm. Now, you know my belief that there is a lot of economic activity with supply chain onshoring and infrastructure. Structure. I understand you disagree with me. That's fine. But what we're no, talking about No, I don't disagree here, with you. I don't disagree what? with you. I, okay. I don't disagree well, with you on that. We disagree on the, the time. We disagree it's on the, the time. time frame at, at which that becomes uh, uh, stimulative to the economy. And today uh, is not it. I mean, it, uh, so, that's, but that's obvious. Okay. That's okay. That's okay. Let's disagree on that. Why Let's we, say that I, I see it happening right now. Why do we right always now? have to disagree on that? Why well, do we have to just, disagree me, on that? Right? I don't understand why we always have to disagree on that. I agree with because, you. Those are going to be long-term. Those are long-term benefits to the economy. They're not near-term things. Yeah, Scott. Here, here's what I'm saying: okay. is that if we're talking about timing and when it's going to happen, and we both agree it's going to happen, then picking up any of these semiconductors, whether it's Nvidia at 1.9 times for a peg or Qualcomm at 0.9 times for a peg, all you have to do is just sit with these. I mean, I don't care if it's the next one month or six months. That's the time frame that you're talking about for these to start to take not off. Not if I can, I can get it. Not if necessarily I think I can get it uh, 10% or more cheaper six months from now hey, rather you know than today. Good. I don't mean this sarcastically. Good luck. And I really don't mean it sarcastically. I, you may get it cheaper than, than it is right now. I got to tell you, these are great companies. The three that I just listed, these are great companies trading at great prices. Normally, you're trying to buy great companies at just kind of good prices. Now you're getting great companies at great prices. You want to hold out for more. Obviously, everybody has their own discretion, but these are great prices. Anastasia, what about you? Chips here or no? I think they're great companies, maybe approaching great prices, but I don't think they're immune from some of the uh, cyclical headwinds that we have. So for me, there is still a couple of red flags for semiconductors. The first one, we just had the uh, Goldman Sachs Communicopia conference and reading through the takeaways of that, there is clearly a slowdown in semiconductor demand, especially when it comes to the consumer. So we're working our way through that. But I think the next phase of it is a slowdown in semiconductor demand because some of the hyperscalers, they really invested in cloud capex in 2022, 2021. They're likely to slow that pace down significantly to mid single digits in 2023. So you're going to have to de-risk the sector for that. And then the other red flag, if I look at the inventories for semiconductors, they're rising across the board and they're not significantly elevated relative to their five-year averages, but they're starting to creep higher. So I think we might be through a big chunk of the correction. I mean, the SOX index is down 36%. 
uh, from 52-week high, but I just don't think we've quite worked through all those red flags just yet. Yeah, no, that's the whole double and triple ordering thing that Steph's been talking about for uh, many, many weeks at this point, and one of the reasons why she got out. There are more than 20 SPACs liquidating this year, and today, word of another two closing. We're following that money next right here on The Half. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. The so-called SPAC king, Jamath Palihapitiya, closing two of his funds. Our Leslie Picker following that money. She's right here on set with us today. Hey, Scott. Wow, Okay. Yeah, quite a quite a difference a few years makes here. Yeah. Uh, to your point, Jamath Palihapitiya, once dubbed the SPAC king, is winding down those two vehicles after failing to find companies to merge with them. The $1.5 billion worth of funds raised by IPOD and IPOF will be liquidated and returned to shareholders. In a blog post this morning, Palihapitiya says the team has evaluated more than 100 targets and came close to doing several deals. But Ultimately, they decided to walk away due to an inability to agree on, agree on valuation and fears from management teams about public market volatility. The unwinding of two of Palihapitiya's largest SPACs underscores just the broader market challenges here. Palihapitiya, in many ways, pioneered the strategy of taking large VC-backed companies public through SPACs as an alternative to the traditional IPO process. However, the six deals that were completed using these vehicles by Palihapitiya are deeply in the red year-to-date. So, so is the CNBC SPAC index, which has seen its value cut in half in 2022 as the market sold off profitless, risky names in the face of high interest rates. Those losses are spooking prospective investors and new SPACs causing new issuance to fall off a cliff and SPACs still searching for merger targets to throw in the towel. Still, Palihapitiya said, quote, our view on SPACs remains consistent since our first deal. So perhaps today's news isn't quite an abdication yet for the SPAC king, but definitely Tough times. So his, his view has been um, bullish, to say the least. Mm-hmm. I want you to listen to what he told me. It was like a year ago at our Delivering Alpha event, which, by the way, the next one's in person next week. Uh, what he said about SPACs for the long term, and then we can chat on the other side. I get a lot of credit when things go up, and then I'm going to get a lot of the blame when things go down. I think we all have to take a step back and say we are one year in to a pretty meaningful revolution in the capital markets that will take years to play out. And so I would love for those same people to rewrite that article in three years and five years and see what it says. Now, we are one year into a pretty meaningful revolution in the capital markets that will take years to play out. That's what he he just said. The question is, do we believe that? Do we believe that it is a meaningful revolution that will continue to play out? Or was it a moment in time in a wildly bull market Josh, enhanced by free money and other stuff. So I happen to think that Chamath is doing the right thing. If you can't make a good deal for the holders of the SPAC, then by all means, return the money. So I think he's doing the right thing here. It's a very tough environment right now, for, even for a traditional IPO. There and are no is he the only one? He's not the only one who's, yes. who's doing this either. Let's just make that so I think he's. Do, I clear. think he's doing the right thing. But with all due respect, 
10 years ago, um, I wrote a book and I had an entire chapter about SPACs. And I very, uh, I very deliberately went through the whole history and all of the details and all of the stats. They have always been a tough, I mean, I refer to them as murder holes. I'm not very charitable. Um, I speak my mind, I say what I think. But like, they have never been a good investment for individuals. They're great for sponsors. They're great for somebody as successful and charismatic as Chamath, who can get into a room, light the place up. Everybody wants to be in on whatever he says. I, I get that. And then he ends up with 20% of the company. It's, it's a much more expensive prospect for investors than just paying Morgan Stanley an 8% underwriting fee. Mm -hmm. Believe me, believe me, it's cheaper to do the IPO if you have a quality company. So there have been these bursts of SPACs throughout history. I have religiously documented each one of them. They always happen at the top of a stock market bubble. We saw China SPACs in the mid-2000s, the aughts decade. Um, we've seen SPACs every time that there's been a gold rush. This time was no different. That moment is now past. And I don't doubt that three years from now, five years from now, we'll all forget there'll be another crop of SPACs. There'll be another justification for why, the, oh no, this is actually good. It won't be good that time either. The nature of these things a blind trust, here's money, you're a genius, you'll figure it out. It is not good for the investor. Name of your book? What's the name of your book? Backstage Wall Street. All right, there you go. Backstage Wall Street. Pick that up. What do you think about that question, though? Whether it is a revolution, um, revolution a pretty meaningful revolution that's going to take years to play out. So I think one of the key differences in the recent SPAC boom that we saw is that we had a lot of institutional players involved in ways that we hadn't seen before. Historically in SPACs, we hadn't seen Goldman Sachs as a major underwriter. We hadn't seen pipes that were comprised of some of the top names, you know, in mutual funds and hedge funds and so forth that were helping to kind of backstop these deals. Now, however, and one of the big reasons the market has frozen up is you've got this regulatory attention now put onto SPACs and, and banks are facing uh, much more liability for underwriting these things and the projections that the Leslie, management take the, give. take the best five SPACs of this era. Let's say they were done in 2019, 2020, right? Um, even if you want to throw in Virgin, like let's just take the best ones. Tell me which of those companies could not have been done with a roadshow, with disclosure, um, with the same regulatory framework as a traditional IPO. Oh, sure. Every single one of them could have been done the right way. Now, the pandemic added a twist. You couldn't do a traditional roadshow. You couldn't do steakhouses. Okay, that made sense for six months. But like all good ideas... Um, eventually, there's too much of it. We had 1,035 IPOs in 2021. We had a lot in 2020. Um, we started the year with a lot. It's too many. So it's not just SPACs. Too much underwriting. We talked about it on the show. What kills a bull market sometimes is not bad news. It's oversupply. Think of the goose being force-fed in order to get foie gras. There's just too much. So it's nobody's fault. It's not all because of the SPAC structure. We definitely had a bubble, and I definitely don't think the investor in general is served by less disclosure versus more disclosure, especially with a young, untested, VC-backed, pre-earnings, in some cases pre-revenue company. More disclosure is always going to be better. Well, that was part of the, the attraction there is that you had uh, a group of companies that were almost self-selecting the SPAC method because they didn't have fundamentals. They didn't have right. financials. And so the benefit of SPACs is yep. that they could 
share their projections, but no one hold them, held them accountable to that. Thank you so much uh, for, for bringing that story to us. That's our Leslie Picker. Uh, Josh, appreciate your input, too. Uh, we're just over a week away, uh, as I said, to Delivering Alpha, the most powerful investment event of the year. That is our own conference. It's back in person, too. September 28th. It's in New York City. I'm going to be interviewing Citadel's Ken Griffin. I cannot wait for that. You can register. You can scan the QR code you see right there on your screen, and you can join us and uh, everybody else who's going to be there, too. Let's get the headlines with Christina Partzinovalos. Hi, Christina. Hi, Scott. Here's our CNBC News update at this hour. A trial is finally being set for the man accused of killing 11 worshipers in the deadliest attack on Jewish people in U.S. history nearly four years ago. Robert Bowers faces more than 60 federal charges stemming from the October 2018 attack at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. The trial is set to begin next April as Bowers is pleading not guilty but could be sentenced to death if convicted. A federal class action lawsuit is being filed on behalf of citizens of Jackson, Mississippi, concerning the recent water system failure in the city. The lawsuit targets current and former city leaders and private companies for what the plaintiffs describe as the ruination of the public water system in Jackson. This comes just days after the state restored clean drinking water to local residents. Despite President Biden's comments that the pandemic is over, many disease experts predict COVID will remain a leading cause of death in America for the foreseeable future. COVID was the third leading cause of death in the United States in 2020 and is expected to remain in the top 10 indefinitely. Halftime returns right after this. Welcome back. Our senior markets commentator, Mike Santoli, joins us now from the New York Stock Exchange with his midday word. What's on your mind today? Uh, it's a slog, uh, Scott. I mean, and it's a global one, too. I think this was a good reminder that central banks across the world are, are kind of rushing to restrain inflation. It's not just here. Uh, and it seems the bond market, uh, you know, not just uh, in the U.S., but globally, has pretty well repriced for that scenario. I think that's one thing you could take comfort in, that the setup into the Fed meeting is not very hopeful. It's basically people saying uh, that hawkish message is probably going to be, again, pretty clear. So that's, a, that's an upbeat one. And I, I've been comparing the situation right now versus what we saw, and I know you guys have been too, near the mid-June lows. And I think you also were approaching a Fed meeting in a, a very downcast tape as we have right now. Breath is pretty awful. Uh, so I do think maybe you can make the case uh, that you're, you're building in uh, a good amount of skepticism. That could be a net positive in the, uh, in the very short term. Big picture, it's still a downtrend. The Fed's still tightening into a slowdown. There's a lot uh, that it's going to take for the bulls to get back the benefit of the doubt. But, uh, you know, as I said, you've, you've priced in a fair bit. I keep saying that, and it's been true. It's a four-and-a-half-month four trading range we've been in right now, and the S&P, we're near the lower end of it at this point. All right, I'll see you in a few. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. That's Mike Santoli. He'll have his last word, of course, in overtime. I'll see all of you then. Up next, we have a bullish call on a big energy stock. Stephanie Link owns a lot of it. The debate... Trade is next. It's time for the call of the day. KeyBank today initiating several names in the energy space, including Diamondback. Overweight price target 163. That's 25 percent up from here. Deep inventory, healthy balance sheet. Stephanie Link has a large position in this name. It's lagged the industry year to date. Why? Why? Reversion to the mean. It was a, it was a stellar performer last year. It led the industry. So a little bit of that. I, I really don't know why. Fundamentally, they've actually done a really good job in terms of every quarter this year beating 
raising. They increased their free cash flow by double last quarter. They're buying back 18 percent of their shares outstanding. They have excellent Permian assets. They have low costs and great returns, above average returns. So the stock trades at five times earnings and five times EBITDA. Anyway, you look at it, it's cheap. And I think hopefully we get another reversion to the mean and it now performs into the end of the year. Okay. Anastasia, do you like energy here? I do. I'd like to uh, adding to energy on pullbacks. We just had one. Uh, look, the balance of uh, you know supply demand is still going to be skewed to a deficit uh, later next this year. The SPR releases we cannot count on. We have significantly depleted global SPRs. And one of the risks that's really worth monitoring as European natural gas prices continue to be very elevated. I mean, we're talking about 50 bucks for MMBTU versus you know seven or eight in the United States. We're going to have some demand to switch from use of natural gas to oil uh, for some of the industrial applications in Europe. So you're going to have that working in the favor of supporting oil demand. So I think this level of prices, as long as mobility stays intact globally, 80 or 90 dollars a barrel is sustainable. And in that environment, these equities, energy equities are massively cash flowing, by the way. We talked about having a chance to compete with bonds. Energy has a chance to compete because they do have a dividend yield close to 4%. So I am a buyer on any pullback. All right. We will take a break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. Give you a quick check of the markets here. You'll see uh, Dow's down 343. Uh, so on the Dow and the S&P now, we're down by more than 1% each. NASDAQ, for a rarity, uh, is not the worst performer. It's down two-thirds of a percent. Russell's down one and a third um, as well. We have final trades coming up next, plus all throughout this month. It's Hispanic Heritage Month. CNBC is celebrating our teammates and contributors. Here's Andres Garcia Amaya. He's the founder of Zoe Financial. I came to the United States from Colombia when I was 12 years old. My heritage had a huge impact in my success, and you don't have to look that far than the company that I started, Zoe Financial. My parents were looking to hire a financial advisor. The concept of hiring someone and entrusting them with, uh, with your money outside of the family is a big deal. So I interviewed a number of advisors and kind of gave me this idea of like, well, maybe there's millions of other families that have a tough time finding someone that they could trust with their money. So it had a huge impact in my career. All right, four o'clock. That's overtime today. Joe Terranova, Cameron Dawson, Victoria Green. We're going to debate the markets. Stacy Rascon, top chip analyst. He's on NVIDIA's big day, whether that stock can get its mojo back. Ed Yardeni, too, on what he thinks the Fed's going to do, what it means for the markets from here. I'll see all of you then, I hope. Let's do final trades. Stephanie Link, please. You so, Morgan Stanley, it uh, has a 3.5% dividend yield, trades at 13 times. They're actually gaining share in trading. They were at a conference last week, talked about $900 million improvement in NII, net interest income, sequentially and up 20% year over year, like the story. I like when you do the net interest income with NII. I had to do that. I know you were going to do that. Okay. Anastasia, final trade. First of all, I would agree with a bank trade, but I got real estate and specifically apartment REITs. They've been sold off this year like everything else, but they have one of the better investment fundamentals as demand for rentals is very strong because nobody can buy a house. And the yield on that is over 3%. So I would look at specifically apartment REITs within IYR. All right. My friend, the farmer, Jim Labenthal. Scotty, General Motors, I know this is an odd day to do it, but 
Ford actually reaffirmed its full year guidance. The chart is very strong on General Motors for the last three months. Okay. And they just announced a really big deal with Hertz for electric vehicle production. I only laugh because Stephanie Link called it a value trap in one of the breaks <laughs> earlier, and we didn't have time to, to, to argue it out. So it's all good. Josh. Uh, <laughs> rates, rates are higher. The banks are uh, outperforming the overall market. All right. And I think that'll continue. All right, good stuff. I'll see you in the OT, the exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.